Grant Holt. Good? Yeah, Grant Holt. Uh, I, I had a lot of time for Grant Holt. We we signed him for not a massive amount of money, I think, from Rochdale, I believe. He, uh, we were talking, at th- this was during our few years that we spent in League One. And yeah, did a good job for us, a, a good, honest pro. Forrest didn't always get the best out of him because, I mean, obviously we all know, we all know kind of what Grant Holt's sort of attributes are. Um, quite why our manager, Colin Calderwood, thought that he would be a decent right winger, I would never know. <laughs> when, he's, when he's clearly a, a, a burly sort of centre-forward. Um, but yeah, he ended up moving on and obviously doing doing really, really yeah. well. And he's, he's, he's a wrestler now, isn't he? I think he's... I he was briefly a wrestler. When I saw him playing non-league football a few years ago against Boreham Wood for, I think, Whitehawk, he did look like a wrestler. <laughs> the man has done well. I think he's got the freedom of the city of Norwich, more or less. And uh, I'm just pleased that he passed through Nottingham Forest. Rich Fisher, author of Church of Stuart Pearce, a book which came out in 2018, documenting over 25 years of supporting Rushcliffe FC Nottingham Forest. Um... <laughs> The managers, we're in the middle of talking managers because it's, it's better than talking about the playing staff. Uh, and it'll pivot, we'll pivot towards what it is to be a fan, surely, which is majorly what I've got you on for. But um, among the managers who didn't see out a season were Doogie Friedman, Fidi Montagnier, Mark Warburton, who was fired on New Year's Eve 2017, Aitor Karanka, and a player who has a lot of history with Nottingham Forest, Martin O'Neill. Uh, but this was all kicked off after Billy Davis left, the second coming. Uh, it was Stuart Pearce who came in. Were you and were other fans delighted that Stuart Pearce came in? It was real mixed feelings, actually. I mean, Forest fan, talk to any Forest fan of a certain age, and Stuart Pearce is just an absolute hero to all of us for what he did as a player at Forest. And um, I think there was always that feeling that he probably would eventually come back as as manager at some point, but there was equally that sort of hesitation amongst the fan base around in terms of, you know, it, won't it be terrible if he inevitably fails as most Forest managers do? You know, we all know that that's, that is what happened within less than a year. Um, but I think it says... I think it says a lot about the sheer level of esteem in which Stuart Pearce is held. That I think once once the dust had settled and we'd moved on and gone into the, the yet another new era with another new manager, that he is still held up as an absolute icon and hero amongst Forest fans. You know that kind of period when he came back as manager and wasn't particularly good is is something that uh, you know we. Obviously, not forgotten about, but uh, we, we, you know, we 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 sort of tend to focus on the twelve years he spent as a player, rather than that uh, sort of eight or nine months when he became yet the latest manager to uh, fail to yeah. live up to expectations uh, in terms of where people expect Forrest to be. In through the outdoor. Now, Henry Winter wrote a piece in January, uh, which is a few weeks ago as this comes out, but we're talking on January the fourteenth today but he wrote a piece saying Arteta, Solskjaer, Lampard, five managers in the Premier League were hugely successful as players. If you're a chairman does that not just buy you an insulation against any criticism? Well we've given you one of your own in charge, get used to it. 
Um, was that did it, did it feel like that when Martin O'Neill came back? Yeah, I mean, again, Martin O'Neill, his name had been linked with Forest, the Forest job, on a number of occasions in the past. You know, even going back as far as uh, he was apparently uh, spoken to about coming in to replace Brian Clough. Now he was manager of Wickham at that time, so pretty early in his managerial career. Ultimately, Martin O'Neill came. He was probably the right manager for Forrest, but came maybe 10 or 15 years too late. He never really got given time, and that's been a recurring theme. He came in in the January to replace Karanka, got until the end of the season. I think we, we sort of, he sort of took over Karanka at a time when we were sort of maybe seventh or eighth in the table, and I think we ended up finishing ninth. So he didn't make us sort of better, but didn't make us particularly worse we weren't great to watch under his time but he literally only had about 21 22 games and then was dispensed with mm. you know whether give him a give him a summer and give him a full season who knows what he could have gone on to achieve you know we might be back in the premier league by now with him still as manager i'm if, sure if you would have found a way to blow it late on there must be a reason well, yeah. there must be a reason why nigel clough has never taken the nottingham forest job do you think it's something to do with the statue of his dad in the town centre, city centre? I mean, he did have talks not so long ago when he was Burton manager. About, now, I can't remember which manager we'd just sacked or <laughs> who had just left. It was one of those where we hadn't appointed him, but the club went public saying we are talking to Nigel Clough. And uh, I think it was possibly after Mark Warburton, or I don't know, you, you, I was to say you, you lose track when you swap managers so yeah a lot of Forest fans there was that sort of intake of breath it's another sort of hero potentially returning is it all going to end in tears uh, but then he announced no I'm going to stay with Burton it doesn't feel right to abandon Burton when they're in the middle of a relegation battle and I mean Nigel Clough uh, from what I've, I know of him what I've read of him and what I've heard people say of him it seems a very principled man which you have to admire but you suspect that he that was there was as well as his sort of honourable intentions to Burton there was probably an element of uh, yeah I would maybe like to come back and manage Forest one day but the club's being run quite erratically at mm. the moment and well, I know, now's maybe I think time. his dad would have said choose your chairman carefully and indeed he went to Derby I, hope, I don't know if it's under Mel Morris but it didn't work at Derby or it, it worked to an extent. Well, yeah, no, yeah I mean, I'm not sure how long. Because Nigel Clough at Derby were going back a good seven or eight years yeah. now. And then he left, went to Sheffield United for a while and then back to Burton. And now he's obviously back in Nottinghamshire managing Mansfield Town. Yeah. Uh, oh, that makes sense. I did wonder why he went to Mansfield, but it gets yeah, near his house. It's near his kids. There's no way. Yeah. He's, yeah. Well, he is very, very family orientated. It is interesting that in his managerial career, he's never really moved too far beyond his sort of native East Midlands, really. So, yeah, I mean, so that would have probably been a huge pull in terms of the opportunity for taking over Mansfield. Uh, but yeah, who knows? The, the, the day may come where he ends up back at Forest. Uh, for 10 minutes. Just give him one yeah. game. Give him a game. Give it to Billy Davis again. Or let you have a go. go yeah, I've, I've often made this joke, actually, that rather than just wasting time appointing permanent managers and then sacking them after 10 months and then having to keep paying them off, you know, why don't we just treat it like, have I got news for you? And yeah. how they have guest manager every game. So, yeah, you could, like, 
yeah, you could pick random fans as a competition prize, get Billy Davis back for a third spell just for one game, just for the crack. All these managers are sitting waiting for a contract. If you give them kind of winner stays on, that is, that's so stupid, it might work. It's never going to work, probably because of contract law. All these managers, Sol Campbell would be itching to get a taste of Nottingham Forest. Philippe Montagnier would probably want another go. But as it stands, it's Chris Hewton, one of the best English managers of the last 20 years. Uh, Very socialist. Are you seeing a lot of the socialism that Chris Hewton is known for as a manager? actually no that's 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 interesting i've not really heard much of that so whether as in kind of outwardly yeah very left-leaning we was i think he was involved in the pfa he was the players rep at the pfa comes across very well as someone who wants fair representation for all and is obviously one of the finest black managers um of the last 50 years i i hope he's in charge a while uh, you do have a window at the moment. Is are Forest fans clamouring for particular players to come into the squad? Well, ironically, normally fans are sort of shouting from the rooftops about, so uh, you know, we want our club to sign X, Y, and Z. Forest fans are more leaning towards the other way because in the last sort of two or three transfer windows, we've just signed ridiculous numbers of players and. The squad is so bloated, and if, if anything, it's the other way round. Uh, I mean, the, the, the club's recruitment policy has just been so all over the place uh, in the last few years. You know, we—I think we uh, we moved on one of our uh, one of our left backs the other day, uh, who's gone gone overseas to a, a Greek club, um, a guy called Nicholas Yanu, who we only signed in the summer. And Chris Hewton actually made the point in the media, well, you know, I've got four left-backs, I can't play them all. And, and that, which kind of says it all about our recruitment. There just seems to be no rhyme or reason to it. We just seem to be... Kind of, it feels like the equivalent of panic buying in the middle aisle of Lidl. Um, <laughs> the sorts of players that we bring in, it's just been bizarre. But we've just got such a bloated squad. And if anything, it would be more healthy to just see a few go out the door and trim it down a little bit. Yeah, again, it's a complete mystery as to whom uh, Forrest will line up with on the weekend. We don't know if it'll be selected for Sky. I can't imagine Watford against Forrest will set the pulses racing when they could pick Bournemouth or Norwich or Brentford. Uh, But it might be on Sky this weekend. You'll find out nearer the time and you'll also find out whether football is on at all. 25 seasons ago, what were Nottingham Forrest doing in Bavaria? We were the going to play Bayern away at the old Olympic Stadium in Munich in the first leg of the UEFA Cup quarterfinal. Were you there, Rich Fisher? I was there, yeah. That's what, I was 16 at the time. I was still in my GCSE year at school and uh, I will hold my hands up. I bumped off school for three days so I could go to Germany to watch Forest. Wow. I think a lot of Watford fans, we were chasing seventh place and chasing the FA Cup and... Watford have not had European football for 40 years now, since 1983, when the UEFA Cup run ended in the third round. So it was one round sooner. Um, But Nottingham Forest, who were used to European football um, 15 years ago, but you'd never experienced that because you were too young. As you said, you were born in the midst of Clough, Taylor, Robertson and the rest. For a 16-year-old going to watch Bayern Munich in 1996, could you believe something like that could have happened? It was a result of Forest winning the League Cup? No, it was well. We'd we 
we were in the UEFA Cup, but it was because we'd finished third in the Premier League in the previous season. So, obviously, in modern times, that would be a Champions League place. Um, but back then, it was uh, a spot in the UEFA Cup. But, you know, at the time, you, you, it was really exciting because, as you say, I'd, I'd grown up being... I was actually born in 1979, so I was, I was born a few months after the... I was born basically between the two European Cup wins in 79 and 80. Um, so I was too young to actually remember them. Um, but growing up in Nottingham, I'd, I'd sort of grown up listening to you know people like dads and uncles and elders who'd, who'd been to Munich in 79 to see Forrest win that first European Cup. And you kind of, growing up as a Forest fan, it just, it obviously... My early years of being a Forest fan, English clubs were banned from Europe, so Europe wasn't even on the possibility. So, but yeah, when the European ban finally got lifted, I think in like ninety-one for Liverpool, yeah. Suddenly, it was something that uh, was a possibility again, and uh, it finally happened for Forest in that ninety-five, ninety-six season. And uh, it's funny. Uh, I actually, we got to the quarterfinals. We did end up going out to Bayern Munich, although we, we yeah, we cut to, we gave them a good game to a to a point. You know, it was a really good Bayern side with like Oliver Kahn in goal, Matthias Klinsmann, Jean Pierre Papin. Oof. Yeah, some really really good good players. Uh, yeah, but uh, Stuart Pearce was left back for Forest. Uh, no, no, no. Calderwood uh, Calderwood came later, okay. um, so. I mean, a team, I think a lot of people, perhaps not just Forest fans, remember fondly is that Forest team that came up, that got promoted to the Premier League. So Brian Clough, obviously we famously got relegated in Brian Clough's last season in 93, um, bounced straight back the next season under Frank Clark, And then in the first season back in the Premier League, that was when we finished third. I think, yeah. it, I think it's still the highest placed finish for a newly promoted team in the history of the Premier League. And You're certainly in the Premier like, League, but not, not overall, because I think it's Derby. Derby won the league as a promoted side. Under Clough? It, uh, it, no, you're, now you're getting, you're getting Derby mixed up with us. It was actually us. Oh, uh, we sorry, yes. Yeah, um, but yes, certainly in the Premier League era, and obviously... That's what I'll matters. Yeah, I mean, I say that with the caveat that, you know, I'm, I'm aware that football did exist before then. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, the Flat Forest team, it was kind of Mark Crossley in goal, Des Little at right-back, Stuart Pearce at left-back, Steve Chettle and Colin Cooper in the centre of defence. Midfield was uh, Steve Stone on one side, Ian Wone on the left, um, Lars Bohinen and Scott Gemmell in the midfield, in the middle of midfield, and then Brian Roy and Stan Collymore up front. yeah. And then the following season was pretty much that same team minus Stan Collymore, who'd cleared off to Liverpool in the summer. Who replaced him up front? Well, was it Van Hoydon? No, he came... Van Hoydon was a few years later. Um, Collymore, we... Obviously, we sold him for, I think it was eight and a half million, which at the time was a a British transfer record. And so we had money to burn. We bought two strikers, Kevin Campbell, who you probably will remember, and one that you might not was Andrea Salenzi, first first Italian to play in the Premier League, albeit wasn't very good. And, uh, hmm. I wonder why he moved to Forest. I've heard good things about Boinen, but not much about Salenzi. But that that team, I think Crossley is Canadian, so there's a lot of 
well, it's mostly fully British apart from Brian Roy, that side. Yeah, well, Cross, Crossley's from Barnsley. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, um, trying to think. So, yeah, Des Little English, Pierce, obviously English, Chettle, Cooper, Cooper Crossley. Although he's from Barnsley, actually played for Wales. Wales. International. Right. Because of a, a, a tenuous family connection, <laughs> although he's, he's the most Yorkshire person you could ever... <laughs> I don't hear much about Mark Crossley. That team, who are obviously going to be spending the 25th reunion remotely this year, I, I imagine, yes, fondly thought of. Obviously, Scott Gemmell has famous stock. Are they all still involved in the club, in the former players' mob? Uh, I, I, Scott Gemmell, I believe, is involved in the coaching setup with the Scotland team yeah. now. I'm not really... Lars Bohinen, um, you hear... You hear Bits and pieces, but I think he's back, back in his no, his Norway. native. Uh, Ian Wone is Sean Dyche's, Sean Dyche's number, number two. two. He's the good cop. Yeah, I think Steve Stone is also involved in the Burnley coaching setup. Um, Brian Roy, I think he might be involved in coaching in the Netherlands. Des Little, no idea. Steve Chettle is still involved in kind of grassroots football locally in uh, Nottinghamshire. I believe he's manager of one of our local non non-league teams. I'm going to say Baseford Town, but I could be wrong. Mark Crossley has been involved in coaching, but I believe is between jobs or whatever the term is that out-of-work football coaches use at the moment. He's, he's going to apply he's... for the game show, I think. Which which game <laughs> will he win? And that is the first team you ended up falling in love with. But should Brian Clough have stood down after whatever happened? Apparently he would have stood down had Nottingham Forest won the FA Cup final in 91, should he have stood down anyway? I think hindsight's a wonderful thing. Looking back, I think if we'd won the FA Cup, maybe he would have gone because obviously it was well, very well known that that was the one trophy he'd never won. It would have been a, a nice full stop to his, his career. But yeah, I mean, I guess it's one of those sliding doors moments, isn't it? You know, if if he had gone then, he'd have left at a point when we had a very healthy team. Somebody else could have come in and just kept the, st- the ship steady. Whereas actually, by the time he did go, we're, we'd just been relegated. We're in a, a state of complete disarray. And whilst Frank Clark did get us back into the Premier League and did well for a couple of years, we've, we never ever got a foothold in there. We were back down again in, his third se- in the third season, back in the top flight, and then came straight back up, but then went straight back down and have remained down ever since. So... Yeah, I mean, since Brian Clough left, we've only ever had five years in the Premier League, uh, including two seasons where it was a solitary season where we went straight back down after coming up. So, it's, uh, since Graham Taylor left a second time, Watford have only had six seasons in the top tier. Uh, and there are statues for Graham Taylor outside the ground. And Brian Clough's got two. There's one outside Pride Park and there's one at Nottingham City Centre. I, I presume you've read Duncan Hamilton's great book on Brian Clough. Uh, to you, as a young man uh, growing up in Nottingham when Clough was still the manager, uh, to you, young Rich, what did he represent? It's funny, growing up, when I first sort of got into Forest, you you sort of took for granted that there were a team that was usually in or around the sort of top five. I think it's only when you get a bit older and you realise that actually Forest aren't, 
as big a club in terms of money and size of fan base and stuff as a lot of other clubs that you start to appreciate what he did achieve here from a very young age I just found his personality quite magnetic really 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 sort of magnetic uh, you know just that charisma and his that turn of phrase that he had growing up in Nottingham kind of Cluffy was almost like obviously you, you have your real dad in your real mm-hmm. life but he was almost like a second dad to it to you as a kid you know that sort of person who you'd always be looking over your, your shoulder I remember writing to him as a kid and uh, and he was quite well known for this. He, he, he'd sent back a signed photo and he'd always write, be good, Brian Clough. Mm. And he was sort of like, you always sort of looked at it and thought, shit, I better be good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he had that kind of, he had that kind of effect, uh, I think. Uh, I, I don't know, I look back and, you know, he's still revered by not just Forest fans, but just football fans in general. And I kind of think, wow, how lucky were we to have him for 18 years at our little club? Yeah, what brilliant character. Um, incredibly sad when he he passed on in back in 2004 yeah um i enjoyed the damned united i didn't read the book uh the football i've always said every time we mention clough i say the football library holds both the damned united the book and the damned united the script written by peter morgan who i believe has written something else about the crown clough is so written about that it means that forest will always be on the shelves which also means that that era of forest is distillated and it was also distillated in a quite brilliant film that Forest fan Johnny Owen shot. Uh, were you at the premiere of I Believe in Miracles? Was there a special screening in Nottingham of the film? There was actually, and yeah, I was there. I was there with my dad. Um, they put a, a big screen on the pitch at Forest, uh, sort of facing the Trent end of our ground, and you could buy you could buy a ticket to go. And so you, you actually sat in a it was a great, a great way to do it, actually, being given the subject matter of the film. You had actually sat in a normal seat at a uh, in a football in, in our stadium and, and watched watched the film. So yeah, the screen was sort of set up, kind of probably level with the the D on the edge of the penalty area. So uh, yeah, I mean, it was brilliant, and they invited all the players from that. Obviously, the film documents those kind of glory days, as it were, under under Brian Clough and Peter Taylor in the late 70s and early 80s and they invited all those players along and they all kind of came out before the film started and gave everybody a wave and and then sat down to watch the film with with everybody else so yeah it was a, it was a great night and it's funny the film kind of came out around the time of the, that sort of awful well in the middle of that sort of awful era of Fawaz Al-Hazawi's ownership of the club and whilst it's a brilliant film and I think Everyone I've spoken to, whether they're Forest fans or support for teams, would agree on that. Uh, it, it really threw into stark contrast what a sad shell of what we used to be we were at that time. And it, yeah, I kind of came away thinking, oh, our football club used to be magic and it's just what it is now. And it was a little bit bittersweet. There is a DVD collection in the football library, for which you do get your laminated library card with a shushing Brian Glanville on it, but just for you, it'll be a shushing cluff. There are kids' books for the library. I do hope to uh, boost the quota of kids' books. Is it Alex Bellos and Ben Littleton? Are they the pair who do books for kids? I think they're... And Frank Lampard, we know, is a kid's author, Theo Walcott, but what football literature do you get for your kids? Um, that's a, to be honest, uh, not a massive. I've not really uh, gone down that road particularly. To be honest, uh, both of them are 
getting more and more, as I said, more and more into football, though. So that's something I might start start to look at. Uh, we, we have got one of those books where I think you can get the same version of the book with every club uh, on it and a different colour scheme. Uh, there's a book just called When I Grew Up, I Want to Play for Nottingham Forest. I mean, there's probably a, a version of it called When I Grew Up, I Want to Play for Watford. I dare say, where, yeah. Where, yeah, my two are... Something I did buy for them recently, which is not a book, but I think it, the level of interest it's generated suggests that books probably are the next step. I bought them a poster of a map of the UK with all of the Knights to League clubs plotted on it. So, because yeah, they're constantly sort of talking about you know as, as a result through their match attacks cards or whoever Forest happens to be playing. Well, where's Swansea? Where's Manchester? Where's yeah, you know, where's Bristol? Where's uh, where's whoever uh, whatever football's on the TV? So I thought, right, well, let's let's teach them a bit of geography here. And yeah, they've been absolutely fascinated by that. The Knights two league clubs on one side and the National League on the other. Genius. Um, it was great. Yeah, I think the idea is is if you're a ground hopper, you have it up on the wall and tick off uh, the grounds you've been to. Well, or um, if you're like me, a football library radio show host, I'm trying to read the ninety two, so I'm trying to tick off. Some, I haven't chatted to a Mansfield yet. I might have to get Nigel Clough involved. Or the, is it the Shannon? Not the Shanahan. She's at Port Vale. Um, there's a very good couple who own Mansfield. I can't remember their name. But... Oh, it's the Rad- Radfords. Yes, isn't it? the Radfords. Yes. Um, yeah. I'll try and speak to them. Uh, tomorrow I'm speaking to a chap called Justin Wally, who grew up in Hinkley and is a Northampton Town fan. But you're going to have to stick around because Justin's story is just Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, and I'm really excited about talking to him. He says he's become increasingly disillusioned with how the game is run. Do you agree? I do agree, yeah. I've, to be honest, I've felt a bit that way for quite a long time. What I've learned over the years is that whilst football is the, the, the football is the reason we go the match and and get excited about it, the most important thing is actually the kind of that kind of fan experience and being part of the community, which obviously I've really missed over the last year. You know, that, just that kind of whole ritual of uh, deciding how I'm going to get to the game, getting to the game, meeting my mates, having a beer, having a chat. For me, those those are the things that will never change and will always be magic. And whatever's happening with the actual way, the way the game's being run, it doesn't ever really impose on any of that. And whilst it's frustrating and we might hate VAR or we might, you know, hate lack of atmosphere in modern stadiums and things like that, there will always be those elements of the match day that you kind of have completely within your control to... That will, that will always remain... I mean, it's, I think it's... I don't know, maybe this is just the Forest fan who's had several decades of disappointment talking, but the amount of times I've gone to, say, an away game, there's been a terrible 2-0 defeat that, you know, weeks, let alone years later, I'll have completely forgotten every detail about. But actually, you know, there's been four or five really funny things that have happened on the way to the game or in the pub. And, and it's actually... Tends to, I think, as a fan, those are the things that you perhaps cherish just as much as the the last minute goals, the uh, fluky equalisers, the all the kind of little triumphs on the pitch. So yeah, I, I think for all the frustrations of football as it changes, uh, 
the magic of being a fan will always be there for me, I think. Yeah, you see, I don't like people. I started going to football when I was about eight. I went to Arsenal and Tottenham, Watford a couple of times. And then when I was 24, I thought, well, there's entertainment virtually on my doorstep. Let's get a season ticket and go to Watford quite a bit. This coincided with the Pozzos taking over the club. But the more I read about Watford and the more fans I've interacted with, the happier I've been to be born. I was born in the hospital next to the club to be a supporter I'm not a fanatic, I'm a supporter of Watford do. I've got family who have been going for decades. Um, but recently I had quite a nasty episode uh, whereby I was ganged up on by several fans. And I thought, do I need this? I don't know if there's a kind of Neanderthal element to the Nottingham Forest fan base. I think there is at every club. Yeah, and yeah I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, so that obviously, that obviously happened in person. I only tend to dip my toes into the kind of forest online world. Well, I think it goes beyond football, to be honest, but I find the sort of online culture that just seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger, probably not just in this country, but everywhere, quite unhealthy, to be honest. And there seems to be a, a very blinkered mentality towards, amongst a lot of people, towards anyone who has an opinion different to theirs. And yeah, I just, I just have no, I mean, I've, I've got mates who are Forest fans who I talk to and we disagree on stuff, but we just laugh about it. Whereas, you know, the, those sorts of agree to disagree type disagreements on social media just kind of seem to descend into slanging matches. Well, I go, in, I go into it kind of because it's online, it doesn't matter until someone threatens to call the police. The hyperbole project, which I've put to bed, and it was recognising that some fans, oh, this is the worst thing. I can't believe I've paid £10 for this. And my response is, 50, 60,000 people have died this year. Be grateful. Or if they complain about something, name three players you would sign. Name one thing you would do. It's kind of a Socratic examination. For some reason, a lot of football fans don't like Socratic examination. They call you a nonce or a prick or threaten to kill you. Um, or It's brutal. However... If you find the kind of fan that you like talking to, as I'm sure you have done over the last 30 years, uh, then you can represent one of many fan outlets that you have to pay for. So I'm, this is where I bring in Forest Forever, uh, that you somehow managed to edit. Was it because there was no one else to? No, well, it's... Uh, oh, wow, yeah, so... I mean, I, yeah, Forest Forever is obviously a, a fanzine that I uh, edited for most of my teenage years, actually. Yeah, we're going back to the kind of early 90s when obviously fanzines exploded in English football sort of circles in the late 80s and became a real sort of outlet for fans to be able to have a voice that they perhaps hadn't really had before. And uh, I think for me, I mean, Forest Forever actually started off as sort of a school school project. And, uh, but myself with between myself and one of my friends and we were really young and I think I think I was I, I was once, I was sort of described uh, on in a newspaper as like the youngest fanzine editor in the country which I, I don't know if that was ever sort of substantiated but there certainly couldn't have been many younger than me I think I was 12 when I launched it and but yeah Forrest actually already had a, a couple of really good fanzines uh, back in those days so quite why Looking back, quite why I thought they needed another one, I'm not really sure. But 
I don't know. I suppose that's the beauty of being 12. You don't really, you just sort of tend to throw yourself into things. And uh, I've discovered of the Forest fanzines that already existed. We had a brilliant, couple of brilliant ones called the Almighty Brian, <laughs> obviously named after Brian Clough and the Tricky Tree. And yeah, I, for a couple of years, I, from sort of the age of about 10, I've read them religiously. And, you know, obviously at that being the age I was, a lot of the sort of humour went a bit over my head. But I've loved the kind of irreverent spirit and humour about them. And uh, I don't know, I was always really into writing as a kid. And I suppose combined that and my passion for Forest, it, it you know, it was, it was probably going to happen sooner or later that I was going to get involved I look, it's weird. It's a weird thing. I mean, the, the fanzine, I think, eventually got quite good, but those early fumbling steps into it when I was sort of 12, 13, I, I, I look back and cringe. And <laughs> it's essentially like having your teenage diary available in the public domain, really, because you, you still get copies of Forest Forever trading hands on eBay. It's sometimes quite silly prices, which is quite funny, Jesus, really. Um, yeah. <laughs> Save your money. But, um they all get in the football library because there is a big fanzine wing because for all the democratisation of opinion and also the exploitation of it, I'm not going to name which controversial columnist uh, is now a member of UKIP because she just wants the oxygen. That was what I discovered today. But the, the nature of the fanzine, it is just a voice. Adrian Goldberg had the first one off the ball and then came when Saturday comes and then every fan base has one you see them in shops you see people becoming professional fans are there any professional nottingham forest fans there is this guy he's a real character actually uh called ebby who's actually from germany he first sort of i think he's he just seemed to come from nowhere in the late 90s and and uh, i mean but this i mean i'm trying to think he must be getting on a bit now he's we're talking sort of 25 years later. He must be past 60, I would have thought. Quite loud, outlandish, very German man. And I say very German as in you could look at him and tell he was German. He, kind <laughs> yeah. of always, he, always, he had like a moustache and curly hair and always wore this like leather bomber jacket with loads of, loads of badges and patches on it. <laughs> and quite loud. And I, I don't quite know exactly what the story is, but in the late 90s, he just started appearing at every Forest game. And, and he had this massive flag with his name on it. And so, I don't know, he's, he's been mythologised a little bit, so I don't quite... But I believe the many, many... I think he might have ended up moving over to England. But I believe for many, many years he was literally flying over from Germany for every Forest game. I don't know, I wouldn't say necessarily a professional fan, uh, but more just a kind of a odd, eccentric character who I think most Forest fans are, you know have a bit of a soft yeah. spot for it. Watford have a, a movement and there was those lovely people who would have been part of that movement um, who, who piled on me and it was very unsavoury. I was asking for it. I did start it because I invaded Poland. But just the, the nature of the fan base nowadays, because you can amplify your voice, it's unsavoury. People don't like it. And then you get, I call it bingo where you, you say where's the plan b where's the effort where's the passion where's the commitment where's the substitutions why is the chairman not spending money it's just every fan has that complaint and and it's it's quite boring there's no cooling off period now i mean back, what you're describing is a, a, a massively fast forwarded version of what would have played out in the fanzines back in the late 80s and early 90s but back then if you wanted to disagree with something that had written 
that they'd written in the fanzine. You'd have to get a piece of paper and a pen and write a letter and put it in the post and send it, and then wait maybe six weeks for it to be printed in the next issue. By which time you you know you you're not angry with each other, and whereas you know now it's instantaneous. And whilst in some ways there's benefits of that, I mean I can remember producing issues of Forest Forever where you know we'd put a player on the front cover, and then in the five days it took the printers to print it, they'd been sold. Oh no! And so it was, you know, so it was out of date before it even sort of hit the hit the shelves, as it were. There's definitely advantages to the sort of instant nature of uh, online media. Those positives about it are probably, for me personally, I would say outweighed by the, the more negative things um, around the way people behave on social media. And that's, and that's the thing, it's, it's behaviour. It's, you know, you can't... Social media is merely a platform for people to do whatever they want with. And unfortunately, for me, people just make very dubious choices with it for a lot of the time. Yeah, it's the free will. The free will, but uh, the, one of the big stories of this decade will be technology companies and football will, of course, have a way into it. Where do you go for intelligent Nottingham Forest stuff? I, I, as I, said, I mean, for what I've just said, I do use social media. Um, for me, it's about kind of curating it for a way that works for you. I find that I just tend to focus on following people who I know I'm in tr- who I know are reasonable and, and and produce good stuff and just sort of steering away from the kind of general hashtags which particularly after we've lost a match are just toxic to be honest it's it's painful Watford lost the other week bear in mind we've beaten Norwich and we lost to god I can't remember who it was was it Swansea and the knives were out god the knives just grow up <laughs> Grow up. I, I thought about not supporting Watford. I thought, I don't want to support a club that has this kind of following. And then I thought, well, who else is going to have no Neanderthals? The Football Library exists to promote every club in Britain. And I'm delighted that the Church of Stuart Pearce is in the Football Library. Uh, came out in 2018. Do you look back fondly on bringing it to market and writing it and coming up with all these memories that hopefully we've discussed throughout the last 90 minutes. It, the full title is actually The Church of Stuart Pearce and Other Stories. And it's essentially, when I was writing it, I kind of made, or well, when I decided I was going to write it, I suppose, I made a timeline of my sort of years as a Forest fan and then tr- sort of plotted against it all the kind of strange things and interesting stories that had happened and then sort of wrote it as a series of stories in sort of roughly chronological order. The whole Church of Stuart Pearce thing actually concerns an event that happened at the Glastonbury Festival. I mean, I'm a big music fan as well as a football fan, which is probably a separate discussion, but I went to Glastonbury, as I used to do pretty much every year when I was younger, um, in 2003, back in when he was a Forest player and when I was a kid, I'd acquired a life-size cardboard cutout of Stuart Pearce because Forrest happened... Forrester were selling them when I was about 12. And, yeah, I mean, obviously, as a 12-year-old, you've got to have one. So, yeah, I had this life-size cardboard cutout of Stuart Pearce that had just hung around my house ever since. Um, I get to my early 20s. I'm going to Glastonbury with my mates on a whim as we were packing the car with our camping <laughs> gear and stuff. One of my mates was like, why don't we take Stuart Pearce to Glastonbury with us? That would be really funny. And it was like, yeah, why not? So, and so we took Stuart Pierce to Glastonbury, carried him around the whole weekend, and obviously a lot of, a lot of people sort of found it quite quite funny. 
and some some good photo opportunities and things. But during the weekend, uh, uh, a bloke sort of came up to us, myself and my friends, and was like, you know, can I ask why you've got the Stuart Pearce cut out? And we... Uh, and the reason I'm asking is because I'm actually a, I'm a journalist and I uh, just thought that, you know, there might be an interesting story behind it. It was one of those moments where words just started tumbling out of my mouth and I was like, why am I telling these complete lies? But I told him that so we were the uh, founders of the Church of Stuart Pearson, that we'd come to Glastonbury to recruit disciples Brilliant. and all sorts of other related nonsense. Um, didn't think you know the conversation finished we went off to watch whatever band we were going to see didn't think much of it but then the next day um at the time glastonbury published the daily newspaper that was given out free across the site and on the front page of the newspaper there's this cardboard stuart pierce um a headline the church of stuart pierce is here at glastonbury with my quote that was basically all lies all in there reported as facts and for the remainder of the weekend, everywhere we went, we were just mobbed by people wanting to join the Church oh, of Stuart wow. Pearce. And we were just like, wow, what have we started here? And uh, I, mean, I remember driving home as, as the kind of hangovers were kicking in, turning Radio 1 on, and they were talking about it on Radio 1, and we were like, oh, God, what have we done? <laughs> and it, it, it sort of dawned on me that Stuart Pearce pr- himself probably would have heard about this and probably is thinking, what's going on? Um, so when a couple of days after I got home, I actually wrote to him. He was coach at Man City at the time, just just to basically tell the story and explain it, and just sort of say, you know, I hope you I hope you take this in the spirit it was intended. You know, I'm a massive Forest fan, and you know, and yeah, I sort of set off the letter. I was a bit sort of thinking, oh, I hope 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 he takes this in the right way. And about two weeks later, I got a letter back, uh, which looked like he typed it himself on a piece of blank A4 paper. And it, and it was basically, dear Rich, uh, thanks for taking me to Glastonbury. I'm a bit, I've been thinking I'd quite like to get back into going to festivals, but I'm a bit old now. Best of the look to Forest for the new season. And then he, the best thing is, signed us at the bottom, Stuart Pearce, coach, stroke, cardboard cutouts. Good. What a wonderful um, mensch. His memoir, Psycho, is in the football library, and it won't be too far from Church of Stuart Pearce and other stories. Uh, in 30 seconds... Um, a brief precy of the contents of some of the other stories? Um, I mean, it's basically, I mean, my beyond perhaps that story, my life as a football fan isn't massively exceptional. You know, I'm typically start going to matches with my dad, gravitated towards going with my mates, drunken away trips. Uh, and then that kind of, it covers that sort of way in which your relationship with your team changes as you get older and start to fall into the trappings of adult life, you know, jobs, children things like that, ups and downs. Somebody described it as a Poundland fever pitch, uh, which I'll, I'll take that as a compliment, I think. Hmm. Al, maybe Lidl, since you've given Lidl some publicity, maybe it's the middle aisle of Lidl fever pitch. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. Now, now, what is this film that's coming out this year? Also, my film. OK, so completely unrelated to football, uh, but in 2008... Myself and one of my best mates uh, did something called the Mongol Rally, which I don't know if you've heard of. Um, I think I've heard of it. I know someone who does some rallying, but not. They didn't, he did uh, Rust to Rome. He did that rally. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, I say it's called a rally. I mean, I'm, I am by no means a professional rally driver. No, you just get from A to B. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the Mongol Rally, it's like a, a charity. It's more like a driving challenge. So. 
Um, it, it happens every year and has happened. It's been running for nearly 20 years now. Um, basically, you get, I think there's about 300 places every year. Um, the rules are that you have to try attempt to drive a car with an engine size of no more than one litre all the way from London to Mongolia. Myself and my friend Ed, we decided to have a crack at this in 2008. And being sort of, you know, quite creative people as we are, we thought we'd not only do that, but we'd also film the whole trip with the intention of editing it into a film. And um, so, we, yeah, we took cameras, filmed, shot loads of footage, um, but then kind of got back and just got sucked back into the boring realities of life and jobs and stuff. And uh, and then a year passes, a, a decade passes, we've still not finished the film. But with the current COVID situation, it's always been something that I've kind of been saying I really want to get around to having a proper crack at finishing that project and being stuck at home a lot of the time. I thought, well, what better time to finally get my teeth into it and uh, hopefully going to have the complete, a completed film at some point later this year. Not quite sure how I'm going to get it out there to the world or if there's, if, if there's going to be much interest in it, to be fair. I mean, I've not exactly got kind of Hollywood studios in a bidding war for it, but and it's, it is going to be quite rough and ready. But, yeah, hopefully it's, uh, it tells a good story of two, fr- of two friends attempting to do something ridiculous for their summer. Uh, it sounds like something Tony Hawk's would do with a mate. At what point did you abandon attempts to bring the cardboard cutout of Stuart Pearce to Mongolia? It's funny you mention that. Um, do you know what? I don't think that was even considered because we drove there in a Peugeot 106, which there's not many of them around anymore. I don't know when they stopped making them, but it's not a very big car. We sort of we'd, we'd rammed it with various bits of equipment that we thought we'd need, most of which we actually didn't need. <laughs> but uh, space was at a premium, so... Albeit a cardboard cutout is flat, I suppose. However, one thing we did do, and Ed humoured me on this. Ed actually is an Everton fan, um, but I'd got this idea that it'd be really entertaining to try and make Nottingham Forest the biggest football team in Mongolia. Did I did a bit of a media appeal in the run-up to us setting off on the Mongol rally to say, can anyone donate us any Forest shirts that they don't want? We'll take them with us, and when we get to Mongolia, we'll hand them out to street children um, as, as gifts. And we ended up with over a hundred forest shirts, taking up most of the boot of the yeah. car. And uh, and yeah, we and we did get those forest shirts to Mongolia, and we we did find there were quite hard currency in some parts of Europe on the way as well. I remember in Romania getting a getting a new spare wheel for the car from a scrapyard, and instead of after discovering that we had a boot full of Nottingham Forest shirts, we ended up bartering paying two Forest shirts for a spare wheel from a bloke who'd remembered Forest playing in, in Europe against the Romanian champions at the time, back in 78 or something. So, Wow. And is that story in the Church of Stuart Pearce, since, since it has a link to Nottingham Forest? It, it is, actually, yeah. So there's, uh, there's, there's a whole chapter around that whole when you travel around the world and you wear... And, and if, if you wear a football shirt, some of the some of the conversations you end up getting into about your team in the most unlikely places. Yeah. And, uh, There's a whole book in that as well. There probably is. Uh, I, I always my stock line though is I, I do feel the world has indulged me enough letting me write just the one though. To be fair, oh. so I'll, I'll leave somebody else. So 
Well, I'm I'm not doing anything. I'm just trying to read loads of books, and uh, I'm delighted that just before Watford, fingers crossed, play Nottingham Forest on the first weekend of March 2021, a book all about Nottingham Forest fan Rich Fisher and his 25 plus years of supporting Nottingham Forest. Well, 30 years now. Um, it goes into the football library. You are on Twitter. Is it Rich Fisher one? Um, it's at Mr. Rich Fisher. We've had miracles for Nottingham Forest before. I'm positive that maybe Hewton, maybe Nigel Clough, someone will get control of Nottingham Forest and you will be back where you belong. And Rushcliffe will go back to Anfield and Old Trafford and Bramall Lane. And uh, hopefully you'll be able to go as well. But if not, there's I follow. There's uh, beaming the match into your brain cells as well. But above all, you'll always be a Forest fan. Bridge Fisher... Thank you so much. Have a good year and good luck with this film. Oh, what's the title of the film? Uh, it's going to be called Rich and Ed's Excellent Adventure. When we did the Mongol Rally, we had to come up with a team name and that was our team name. So uh, we, I did consider all sorts of uh, Mongolia-based puns. Uh, so kind of Genghis Can't or, <laughs> yeah. But, but, they'll, they'll cancel yeah, Genghis but, Khan now. You can't talk about him. He's an evil man. He's cancelled. The whole difference. Well, Brian. <laughs> fortunately, Brian Clough, for all his faults, has not and will not well, be cancelled. Well, there's there's been rumblings of uh, when all the uh, when uh, obviously you mentioned the statue in Nottingham, uh, which actually I was part of the pe- group of people who raised all the money for that, which uh, is another hefty section of the book. Um, during the kind of all the unrest in the summer, when there was a lot of statues being pulled down, I remember there were rumblings. A few rumblings on on Twitter. Not that you should necessarily don't take the, take just the... don't. It's all fake news. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, there were sort of some people saying, you know, should his statue come down? He maybe said a few questionable things in the in the past about certain things, which he undoubtedly did. None of which we would we would condone. But I think I don't know. You just have to look at people in the context of the time that they lived in, and whilst you don't make excuses for necessarily what they did i think you have to look weigh things up and look at the big picture of did they do largely positive things yes you know i think you could undoubtedly say that about brian Clough. i think i agree and more good than harm i don't think in the last hundred minutes i found anything bad to say uh, about the one of the leaders of the church of stuart pierce let us hope nottingham forest go up next season next season is most likely Let's hope so. I, I just hope it happens in my lifetime. <laughs> Just like the library,